Uh, with that, if you want to turn in your Bibles to Daniel chapter 2, I'm sure some of you have been wondering when I would get to one of the most famous chapters in Adventist history, one of the most, most identifiable chapters in Adventist history in all of Adventism, Daniel 2. And you best believe today is that day that has been long coming. But this is not going to be your typical Daniel 2 sermon, just to let you know, because there is one important thing that I think we sometimes forget when we preach this passage. And so in order for us to understand correctly what's happening in Daniel 2, I first need to give us an overview of what has happened leading up to Daniel 2. After all, there is a Daniel 1. So I'm going to lead you through this. Don't worry, you don't need to read along. I'm not going to be reading any scriptures specifically yet. But in Daniel 1, in, in 605 BC, a man named Nabopolassar, who was the king of Babylon, dies. Nebuchadnezzar, off at war, hears about this. Nebuchadnezzar is his son, and he races back to claim the throne. And so 605 BC is Nebuchadnezzar's first year in power. And when you're a new king, when you want the world and your kingdom to know that you are a force to be reckoned with, what's the first thing you do other than conquer someone who you know you can conquer? What better way to flex your muscle? And so in fulfilling actual Old Testament prophecy, Nebuchadnezzar leads a raid into Jerusalem and takes captives from Jerusalem. Not only do, does he take captives, he actually also takes vessels from God's temple, so holy items from God's temple, and brings them back to his own in Babylon, his own temple, and puts them in the house of his own God. Please understand why this is significant. What Nebuchadnezzar is saying is that your God now worships mine. He's saying, my God the one that I serve, the gods that I follow, are more powerful than yours. And that signified two ways. Number one, I can take you captive. And number two, I've desecrated your temple. If your god was stronger than mine, he would have protected you. He would have stopped it from happening. So he takes these captives to serve in his palace. In fact, he asks for the best of the best from the captives that he has taken. He asks for the strongest, the wisest, and those that are young. In other words, those that would be able to serve in the king's palace for their entire lives. He teaches these captives his literature and the language of the Chaldeans. And he changes their diet, intending to replace their own dietary laws. And we know, if you've read Daniel 1, this is where we know of the Daniel diet when he asks the king's, uh, he asks some of the king's servants, he says, look, I don't want to eat these. Give me 10 days to eat nothing but vegetables and, and nuts, basically, a whole foods diet, plant-based. Give me 10 days, and if I am not stronger and more healthy than all of your people, I will go to your diet. But Nebuchadnezzar tries to replace their diet with his own. And he doesn't just stop at literature, language, and diet. He takes it one step further. He changes their name. He takes four specifically captive, and he changes their names from 
Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, to Belteshazzar, Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And I find it interesting that we actually don't refer to those three, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, by their Hebrew names. We always refer to them as Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. In fact, we as a, as a church all too often have identified these individuals by their Babylonian names instead of by their Hebrew names. We have given in to the temptation to let our identities be defined by the government in power. You see, Nebuchadnezzar replaces everything in their lives, including their very identity, their very identity, with his own, with one that points back to Nebuchadnezzar. He's making it clear to them and to every other captive that he is the one in charge, that he is now their God, not the God that they served before. And this is important for you to know. God spares the four of them and takes care of them. And it tells us, Scripture actually tells us, that he builds them up in all wisdom and stature. Remember that, because that will come back up. And it is here that we pick up in Daniel 2, verse 1. In the second year of the reign of Nebuchadnezzar, so that's 604 B.C., Nebuchadnezzar had dreams. His spirit was troubled and his sleep left him. I find this interesting. Trouble for Nebuchadnezzar begins almost immediately after he takes captives from Israel. Not more than a year has passed. And yet already he's having trouble sleeping and he's having dreams that are, that are troubling him at night, But let's continue reading verse 2. Then the king commanded that the magicians, the enchanters, the sorcerers, and the Chaldeans be summoned to tell the king his dreams. So they came in and stood before him. Verse 3, and the king said to them, I had a dream, and my spirit is troubled to know the dream. Then the Chaldeans said to the king in Aramaic, O king, live forever. Tell your servants the dream, and we will show you the interpretation. And the king answered and said to the Chaldeans, The word from me is firm. If you do not make known to me the dream and its interpretation, you shall be torn limb from limb, and your houses shall be laid in ruins. But if you show the dream and its interpretation, you shall receive from me gifts and rewards of great honor. Therefore, show me the dream, and its interpretation. Now here's what's really important. Depending on what translation you have, you might read this differently. You might have the mistaken belief that Nebuchadnezzar had forgotten what his dream was. That he did not know. But what we've actually learned through proper translation of the Hebrew text here is that Nebuchadnezzar did know. And he said, my word is firm. You make it known to me. You see, Nebuchadnezzar's only been king for a year. And while he's seen these wise men and these Chaldeans and all the enchanters and sorcerers play all their tricks to his father, it's now time for them to prove themselves to him. And the stakes are high. If they fail, it means death. Now let's continue reading verse 7. 
They answered a second time and said, Let the king tell his servants the dream, and we will show its interpretation. The king answered and said, I know with certainty that you are trying to gain time, because you see that the word from me is firm. If you do not make the dream known to me, there is but one sentence for you. You have agreed to speak lying and corrupt words before me till the times change. Therefore, tell me the dream, and I shall know that you can show me its interpretation. Verse 10, the Chaldeans answered the king and said, There is not a man on earth who can meet the king's demand, for no great and powerful king has asked such a thing of any magician or enchanter or Chaldean. The thing that the king asks is difficult, and no one can show it to the king except the gods, whose dwelling is not with flesh. Now, I read so many big chunks of scripture because I want you to know that what I'm telling you is following right along with what it's saying. I want you to be confident that what you are learning today is walking, is, is coming straight out of God's word. And what's happening here is the king is now finding his men out. And this upsets him even more. Already he's troubled by this dream. Already he's on a severe lack of sleep. Waking up at night sweating, potentially crying if he's full of fear. And now he's angry because these wise men can't even give him the answer. You see, you don't want to confirm that your men are lying to you when it matters most. That's the time that you want them, that's the time where you beg them to be right. I remember when I was ending a relationship I had, found, I had seen signs of it coming to an end, and I remember talking with my girlfriend at the time and, and saying, look, please tell me this is just me being an, an overly attached boyfriend. Like, please tell me that me seeing these things that you're doing is just me overthinking it. Confirm that this is a problem with me, not a problem with you. And sure enough, she looked at me and she said, no, you're right, it's a problem with me. You see, you don't want to hear that, because that means more trouble is coming. And this is when the king finds out that his wise men are lying to him. And now it has buried him in even more hopelessness, despair, and confusion. And Nebuchadnezzar knew, probably deep down, that they were lying all along. But he lived in this kind of blissful ignorance until now. After all, it's always nice to have a yes man to have an echo chamber, to have an entire crew of people that tell you what you want to hear, when you want to hear it, that say, yes, if you, want, if you march on that city, on that nation, you will conquer them. And yes, the gods are, are favoring you. And yes, you will be led into greatness and into victory. And you will be the richest man in the world. Of course you'd want to hear that. And now that whole blissful ignorance, that illusion has been destroyed. And now let's continue reading verse 12 and 13. Because of this, the king was very angry and very furious and commanded that all the wise men of Babylon be destroyed. Verse 13, so the decree went out and the wise men were about to be killed and they sought Daniel and his companions to kill them. Remember, God granted Daniel... And his friends, all wisdom and stature, he grew them. Which means that they were now classified as the wise men of Babylon. 
So when the king sends out a decree and he says all the wise men have to be killed, that now includes Daniel and his friends. God's very gift to his followers actually put his followers in danger. Without looking behind the curtain of knowing what God is doing, right? If I'm just Daniel and his friends, I'm just living my life, I'm going about the king, my day's business in the palace, I'm doing what I'm supposed to do, and then all of a sudden I find out that the king has put out a, a decree that all the wise men are supposed to be killed. I don't know anything about a dream. I don't know anything about any of the showdown that just happened. All I know is that one second everything was fine, relatively, and now everything is not fine. Now, when we, when we move through, through verses 14 to 23, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to explain this. I'm not necessarily going to read it specifically for the sake of time. But here's what you need to know. Daniel then makes arrangements with Arioch, the captain of the king's guard. He makes arrangements with him to meet with King Nebuchadnezzar so that he can make the dream and its interpretation known. He finds out why, and he finds out what, and he says, all right, you schedule a meeting. You let me meet with the king, and I'll tell him what he wants to know. And here's the most crazy part of Daniel's move and Daniel's conversation with Arioch. He doesn't know the dream yet. Do you understand how much of a gamble that is? He literally said, I'll make, I, I know it, I don't know it. In fact, I bet you he very wisely and shrewdly, he didn't lie, right? There's a, there's a commandment about lying, bearing false witness, right? So I bet you he said, I'll, I'll, make, I'll make the dream and its interpretation known. Clever. He didn't say, I know it. He just said, I will make it known. He bought himself some time. So Daniel then meets with Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, his friends, and they pray together, and he asks them to pray. He prays for mercy from God that they might be spared. And that night, Daniel receives a vision of the dream and its interpretation. So his gamble is about to pay off. He finds out what it means, and then we find a, a, a beautiful prayer. In verse, starting in, in verse 20, from 20 to 23, we find this beautiful prayer of praise that Daniel gives to God for blessing him with the knowledge. You see, Daniel wanting to make an appointment with the king is an act of faith. And it's not an act of faith that is very, it's not counted very well. Right? He hasn't counted necessarily the cost. He knows that if, he, if he's wrong and if, if God doesn't come through, he's going to die. But he trusts that God is going to give him the vision that he needs. And here's what's interesting about that. Daniel, in a time of captivity, still trusts God to do something, when if God had just done something a year earlier, he wouldn't even be in this mess. So even after God has failed him, so to speak, Daniel is still choosing to trust God. I find it so interesting because there are times in my life where Man, God has granted me success. God has saved me from things. And I still don't trust him. And yet Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah have every reason to believe that God has abandoned them to Babylon. And yet they still seek him in prayer. 
How's that for faith? And when Daniel receives the vision, can you imagine the relief? This might be one of the most tense moments for God's believers in the Bible. The only one that I can think of as, as more tense in my mind is Moses and Aaron standing before Pharaoh. You see, I don't see Jesus standing before Pilate or the people as that tense because Jesus knew exactly what was going to happen. But Daniel making an appointment with the king before he knows what he's going to say. Moses and Aaron standing before the Pharaoh in Exodus saying, you let our people go. And they have no idea what the outcome is going to be. I can't imagine some of the fear and, 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 and the tension that was present with them. And so Daniel follows up after receiving the vision and he goes and meets with the king. And we pick up in verse 26. The king declared to Daniel, whose name was Belteshazzar. You see, he's, they're, they're reinforcing Daniel's new identity. Are you able to make known to me the dream that I have seen and its interpretation? And Daniel answered the king and said, No wise men, enchanters, magicians, or astrologers can show to the king the mystery that the king has asked. Now notice... In Daniel's response, if you go back and look at the wise men's response, they said, oh, king, live forever. They started by kissing up. But Daniel's not there to kiss up to Nebuchadnezzar. He's there to deliver a dream and its interpretation. And once you find out what this dream is and its interpretation, you can understand why Daniel doesn't really care about Nebuchadnezzar's authority. So Daniel says, no one can make it known. Verse 28, but there is a God in heaven who reveals mysteries. And he has made known to King Nebuchadnezzar what will be in the latter days. Your dream and the visions in your head as you lie in bed are these. To you, O king, as you lay in bed came thoughts of what would be after this. And he who reveals mysteries made known to you what is to be. But as for me, this mystery has been revealed to me, not because of any wisdom that I have, more than all the living, but in order that the interpretation may be made known to the king and that you may know the thoughts of your mind. You see, Daniel makes it clear what authority he is there on, but he can't outright say to Nebuchadnezzar, I'm doing this so that you will follow and acknowledge my God. If he does it, he'll probably just be struck down on the spot. So he has to slyly say what he wants to say. And so here's what Daniel basically says. I'm telling you this so that you know why your thoughts are troubling you so much. Because you know, Nebuchadnezzar, why this bothers you. You just don't want to accept it. See, Nebuchadnezzar probably knew deep down exactly what this dream meant. And he wanted someone to confirm otherwise. I can't think of any other reason why it would be so troubling. Because he felt threatened. And so here's, here's the dream. You saw, O king, verse 31, and behold, a great image. This image, mighty and exceeding in brightness, stood before you, and its appearance was frightening. The head of this image was fine gold, its chest and arms of silver, its middle and thighs of bronze, its legs of iron, and its feet partly of iron and partly of clay. 
And as he looked, a stone was cut out by no human hand, and it struck the image on its feet of iron and clay and broke them in pieces. Then the iron, the clay, the bronze, the silver, and the gold all together were broken in pieces and became like the chaff of the summer threshing floors. And the wind carried them away so that not a trace of them could be found. But the, but the stone that struck the image became a great mountain and filled the whole earth. You see, this is where we get into traditional Adventist interpretation and, and traditional Adventist views on Daniel 2. And obviously I wouldn't be a pastor if I didn't agree with them. But basically what this dream meant was that each part of that statue represented a different kingdom throughout history. And Daniel opens by saying, Look, Nebuchadnezzar, you are the head of gold. And the kingdom that comes after you will be smaller and conquer yours. And all the way down the statue is another, each different part is a different kingdom that conquers the one before it. And he sees the feet mixed of partly of iron and partly of clay. And it says, it shall be a divided kingdom, but some of the firmness of iron shall be in it. Just as you saw iron mixed with the soft clay. And it says, as you saw the iron mixed with the soft clay, so they will mix with one another in marriage, but they will not hold together, just as iron does not mix with clay. So he jumps all the way down to the feet. And he says, look, at that time you'll have many, many nations that cannot come together. They can live in relative peace. They'll be joined together as far as that's concerned, but they will never become one. And it's at that time that the stone cut by no human hand, hand comes in and destroys the statue. You see, we know by looking at history that that head of gold was Babylon. The chest and arms of silver were Medo-Persia. The Medes and the Persians came in and took over Babylon. Then next, that middle and thighs of bronze represented Greece, who we know from history then conquered the Medes and the Persians. Then the legs of iron were Rome, who would come and take over from Greece. And then finally, those feet of iron and clay, those represent, well, us, the modern nations. Because the next step is that that stone cut by no human hand comes in. I want you to see this, verse 44. And in the days of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that shall never be destroyed, nor shall the kingdom be left to another people. It shall break in pieces all these kingdoms and bring them to an end, and it shall stand forever. Just as you saw that a stone was cut from a mountain by no human hand, and that it broke in pieces the iron, the bronze, the clay, the silver, and the gold, a great God has made known to the king what shall be after this, the dream is certain, and its interpretation is true. The two parts of this dream that really trouble Nebuchadnezzar are these. Number one, it means that his kingdom will be conquered and no trace of his legacy will remain. And number two, this means that Nebuchadnezzar is not in God's favor. Because God is not about making Nebuchadnezzar eternally famous and eternally rich and, eterni and eternally powerful. 
No, God is interested in making his own kingdom eternal. So for Nebuchadnezzar, this means, this is, this is a confirmation for him that he is leading and that he is reigning on a clock. And that his time will come. You see, Nebuchadnezzar is not aware of how the prophecy will be fulfilled. But we do because we can look back and see how it was. All that Nebuchadnezzar has shown is that his reign will be temporary. And there's a reason that Nebuchadnezzar is given this vision. We normally read Daniel 2 and we, we read the prophecies like this. We go back in history and we say, this is why we know they are true. We say these prophecies were given so that you and I can trust in God's word and know that, that it is true, that we can verify the information presented. But that's not why God gave this vision to Nebuchadnezzar. In fact, he didn't even tell him what kingdoms would come, just that kingdoms would come. So as far as Nebuchadnezzar is concerned, it doesn't matter if it was just one guy on a horse that comes in and conquers him. All he knows is that he's going to be conquered. The point of Nebuchadnezzar receiving this dream is not so that he would trust God's word like we use it today. But it was given to him so that he would know his insignificance and that he would recognize God's significance. This was given to humble Nebuchadnezzar and to show Nebuchadnezzar that no, 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 you may, try, you may be trying to lord yourselves over my people, but I am their God. And I am your God. And you don't get to do that to my people. You see, they're here on discipline. And when you discipline your children, you still make sure they don't get more hurt in the process. But every time that Israel is sent into captivity, it's because of discipline. Because they have walked away from God's commandments because they have abandoned him. And yes, they are going to be disciplined, but God's not going to leave them and abandon them. And so he steps in to protect them, to keep Nebuchadnezzar in check. And what I love about this is that God starts chasing after Nebuchadnezzar the second that his people are taken. You see, this is even more than just about Nebuchadnezzar knowing his place. God loves Nebuchadnezzar. The majority of my time here, I've been talking about how God loves the oppressed. But it's very, very important for us to remember that God also loves the oppressor. He does not approve or condone of what the, of what the oppressor does. But God wants the oppressor to come to a life-changing and life-saving relationship with him just as much as he wants you to. God has a heart for our enemies. But we like only to pray for God's people when they are in trouble, when they're facing persecution or suffering from loss. And we rarely remember to pray for the oppressor, the persecutor, and the criminal. We look at shootings, national tragedies, we look at bombings around the world, and we want to pray for the victims and their families. In fact, just this week, I believe one night over in Maybe Syria, I'd have to check it again. Twelve girls-only girls schools were burned down in a single night. And when I tell you that, if I told you this out of context, 
Even I would fall trapped to this, and I'd say, let's pray for those girls and their families that they, they hopefully can find a new place to study. And for anyone who died, let's pray for their families as they deal with this. And we would forget the very people that actually did the act. We would forget to pray for them. And in fact, many of us might side with the opinion that says, I hope they get the worst of the worst punishment for doing what they did. You see, God loves the oppressor. God loves the enemy. He doesn't condone, he doesn't approve, and nor does he want them to get away with it. There are consequences for our actions. He wants them to face those consequences. Find, and he wants the victims to find justice. And he wants everyone to know that he loves them and that he is their God. And today, I want you to have the same heart for your enemies that God has for them. This prophecy wasn't given just so that we could look at it thousands of years later and assume that it was given so that we can trust the Bible. Absolutely, that is a minor purpose of the prophecies, that they prove God's word to be true. But this prophecy was given to humble and save one person and to protect God's people. Because in God's world, even kings must bow. Romans 14, 11 says, It is written, As surely as I live, says the Lord, every knee will bow before me, and every tongue will acknowledge God. There is no one too great, no one too rich, and no one too powerful to not bow to God. And God shows Nebuchadnezzar that his kingdom won't last forever, that he isn't God. And that there is always someone stronger, faster, and smarter, and better than him. Nebuchadnezzar is not supreme. He is not sovereign. He is just a human. And when he finally realizes this, look at what happens in verse 46. Then King Nebuchadnezzar fell upon his face and paid homage to Daniel, and commanded that an offering and incense be offered up to him. The king answered and said to Daniel, Truly your God is God of gods and Lord of kings and a revealer of mysteries, for you have been able to reveal this mystery. When we have the love for our enemies that God does, we may even see them come to repentance and salvation. So perhaps you are like Nebuchadnezzar trying to exercise all power and authority, whether it's in your home, your workplace, or over your friends or your family. Perhaps you're in an argument where you're saying, no, I'm right, you're wrong. I am the one who is correct. And you want to control your own life, control your marriage, control your work, control your church, and do what you want. Well, look, you're more than welcome to do it. But remember this, God's kingdom will be set up one way or the other. Amen. And if you have the opportunity to allow someone to guide you, who loves you, wants to save you, and wants to show you eternal life, why pass that up? 
Because as far as I'm concerned, God is a much better orchestrator of my life than I am. Amen. Every time I'm in charge, I mess things up. That's why I have no idea why I'm a pastor. And if you have a hard heart towards your oppressors, your enemies, or your opponents, or the people you disagree with, be they the other side of the political spectrum, be they political figures themselves, be they people in this church or in any other church, be it anyone in another denomination, be it the speakers or, or, or the leaders in our church that you may disagree with, be it me, if you count me as an enemy, well done on you for sitting through the sermons. Look, I'm calling on you to ask for forgiveness to God and remember that God loves your enemies exactly as much as he loves you. And they shouldn't miss out on God's love just because they miss out on your love. And finally, if you are worried about the future, you're seeing the world collapse around you. If you have no idea when we're going to go to war, if you have no idea when something terrible is going to happen, then know this. A kingdom is coming that will be run by God's own hand. And he will protect his people. And this kingdom will last forever. One where there will be no more crying, death, pain, or fear. And you will be safe there. That is a promise, and God is always faithful to keep his promises.